Well, with all hearts being free, we'll turn our attention to our scripture reading today and to our thought for this morning. And uh, and in the day and the age that we live in, it doesn't matter what you're talking about. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's the, the, the news media or what have you. Uh, it, it seems like just there's so much in the world today that the whole sole point and purpose of it is to try to make you feel as isolated as possible that you're alone. And we'd like to take for a thought this morning that you're not alone because it's easy for us to get down and to get dejected and think that there's just that there's nobody but us that is going through the things that we're going through. But uh, I'm thankful that we have a God who's tempted in all ways as we're tempted, yet He is without sin, and that's the key differentiator. We are to strive for holiness. He is holy. We're going to take our reading this morning out of the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 1 through 6. And as we go over there, we look at this uh, at this verse of Scripture here. And Paul is getting into this example about, you know, the people of God, uh, the, of, of Israel, and, uh, and, you know, some of the things that they had done in the past and, and, and who it was that God had set aside. And so he writes this, and he says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Wot ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, and it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace, but if it be of works, then it is no more grace. then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. And so uh, we're going to stop at that sixth verse. And, uh, and and he's looking at, you know, this really, this, this, this judgment that has really taken place against the house of Israel. Uh, and, and as they were commonly known at that time and after the captivity, the Jews... Uh, because Judea was the only one that remained after captivity. Uh, Israel had ceased to exist. It was called Samaria now, and uh, and it would still be referred to as Ephraim from time to time, uh, but largely Israel has ceased to exist. Judea is still uh, prominent, and it still uh, lasted right up until the day of Christ. Um, but we know that after the day of days of Christ, uh, not long after he was sacrificed and after he ascended to the right hand of God, uh, that the judgment of God visited Judea and brought to an end uh, the kingdom of Judea. And, uh, and so, you know, Paul is lamenting in certain ways uh, the state of Israel and the fact that so many of his brethren after the flesh have fallen away from God, and and uh, and He's looking toward the redemption of them, 
and he says, Hath God cast away his people which he foreknew? Won't ye not what the scripture saith of Elias? How that he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I'm left alone, and they seek my life. And that's what, that's the state that Isaiah had gotten into, isn't it? And we look at that over in 1 Kings in chapter 9. And Isaiah hears Jezebel. After, this is after Isaiah, in such a bold fashion, had made that challenge there at Mount Carmel to the prophets of Baal, uh, that they would, uh, that they would prepare an altar and lay a sacrifice on the altar and they would beg for their God, Baal, to uh, send down fire to consume their sacrifice. And they cried and they cried and they cried to the, uh, to Baal, so much so that Isaiah started poking fun at him and says, well, maybe he's asleep or maybe he's gone on a trip into a far country. Maybe he just can't hear you from where you're at. But I want to tell you here today that we serve a God who near unto us at all times, isn't he? And he can hear uh, everything that you uh, that you have to say. Uh, he can not only just hear everything that you have to say, but he can hear every thought that passes through your head. That's how close that he is to you. But nevertheless, uh, Jezebel rose her ire up against uh, against. Uh, Isaiah, she got angry at Isaiah and she had made a, a decision that she was going to have Isaiah killed. Uh, and so Isaiah, he goes from this period of boldness uh, in the previous chapters uh, to now he finds himself running away. And we read in the fourth chapter of the 19th uh, chapter, first the uh, fourth verse of the 19th chapter of 1 Kings. I'll spit it out in a minute. Uh, it says this, but he, meaning Isaiah, uh, he himself went a day journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said it is enough O Lord take away my life Isaiah was done fighting wouldn't he he was ready to go he understood what Paul meant when Paul said I'm in a strait betwixt two having a desire to depart you know, here Isaiah is in the Israel uh, during the days of Ahab, and he's proclaiming the word of God, and he's getting very few people listening to him. Very few people paying attention to what the prophet of God has to say, what the man of God has to say in that day. And we can look around in our day and age, and we can look at the state of society, not just in the nation that we live in, but if you look abroad in other nations around the world, you can find out that in many ways, the same symptom lies in all the nations around the world today, and that is they lie in a state where they don't want to hear the word of God preached, uh, they don't want to hear the Bible preached. And when I say that, I mean they don't want to hear the absolute truths that are contained in the Bible preached. They want to hear uh, some other version of the Bible preached where they get the good feelings, but they don't get the condemnation that comes from the truth. Folks, the truth of the matter is that if you're here today and you haven't been saved, you don't have to wonder, am I condemned? Because Jesus made the declaration in the third chapter of John that they who have not believed are condemned already. So Jesus didn't have to come and condemn anybody. Jesus came to offer a way whereby you could be saved and not have to face the guilt 
and the wrath of that condemnation. But it would all be forgiven. But Isaiah, here he is, he's pounding his head against the wall, and he's saying, Lord, I'm done. Take me. Take me. Take my life. It's it. I, he says, for I'm not better than my fathers. I cannot do the things that they did, Lord. And he's right. He did greater things than they did. He just had a moment of weakness, didn't he? It, that happens when you start, when Satan tries to get your attention diverted and he tries to convince you that you're alone, that there's nobody else, that you're wasting your time getting up in the morning on Sunday morning, going to church and worshiping God, going to church on Sunday night, going to church on Wednesday nights. Satan wants you to believe that all of that's for nothing and that it's for a lie, and he can even persuade even some of the most righteous sometimes, can he, in a moment of weakness. Isaiah's looking around, he's saying, I just don't see the results. I'm proclaiming, Lord, and that's what it means to preach, is to proclaim. I'm proclaiming, but nobody's listening. A little later, he finds a cave in the ninth verse of the 19th chapter of 1 Kings. And he comes into the cave and he lodges there and he's found this place of solitude. I found, I finally found my quiet place. The only difference is the quiet place that he found, he intended to stay there, didn't he? He said, people want to kill me for this. I haven't been seeing any results from the nation of Israel. I'm just going to stay here. And that's when God comes to him. And God comes to him in the 10th verse and he said, and, and, and well, he makes this statement. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altar, slain thy prophets. And this is what Paul was picking up on in Romans. And they've slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. He says, I'm all alone, Lord. That's exactly the way Satan wants you to believe that you're in. That's the exact state that he wants you to believe that you're in, that you're all alone and that you can't do anything of yourself. And I want to say this, if you're just doing it of yourself, I want to agree with that statement. Anything that you do needs to be done for the good and the glory of God, not that they would see you and see your good works, but that by the your good works that they may see your Father in heaven and glorify Him. And so we get into this here. God comes to him in the 11th verse and he says, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And the Lord, 
And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break the pieces the rocks of the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, but after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And we'll use that sometimes. But I'll tell you what, sometimes God speaks to us in a way that it calms those fears, doesn't it? You know, God manifested himself in the wind and the earthquake here, and in the fire. And, and you know, those are miraculous ways that he, prevent, he, he, that he presents himself, isn't it? But none of that calmed, calmed Isaiah. God comes to you in a way when you are torn to pieces. He will come and he will, he will calm the waters, won't he? Just the same way that Jesus stood there and said, Peace be still, he says, Calm down. See, it wouldn't have done God any good in that moment in the state that Isaiah was in. If he'd have been in any of those other things, it would have just exacerbated the state, wouldn't it? And God comes to him in a still, small voice. In other words, he comes to him and he comforts him in his grief, and in his anxiety. And he says, what are you doing here? (laughs) Go on and go forth. Go on and go forth. You know, a lot of the same way we see in 2 Kings with Elijah's protege. Elisha. We see in 2 Kings chapter 6, we see a similar a similar thing happen. We start in the 8th verse here. The king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In so much and in such and such place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou not pass such place or, or such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of and saved himself there, not once nor twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this king, and he called his servants, and he said unto them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, the king of Syria was convinced that within his camp was a traitor. Somebody here is relaying to the king of Israel what our plans are for them, and they're escaping out of the traps that we're laying because of whomever this traitor is. But the the, the servants come to him, and they say, uh, It's not of us, uh, O king, but Elijah the prophet in it, that is in Israel telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. And you do you think for a second that Elisha could tell him those things that God, but God is in it. God is relaying to Elisha the things that are on the mind and heart of the king of Syria. And Elisha is simply relaying those things to the king of Israel. And so what does the king of Syria do? He says, okay, send the horses, send the men, go get Elisha. Go get Elisha. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. (laughs) 
Where is he at? He's in Dothan. So he's in Alabama. <laughs> Man, I thought that I thought that would catch more people off guard. <laughs> he was in Dothan. And so he sends his he sends his army to Dothan to get one man, doesn't he? All his all his horses, all his chariots. You go get Elisha, bring him to me. You know, you hear it, Satan again. He wants you to either think that you're alone and that nobody's listening to you, or he wants you to believe that you're outnumbered and it's pointless anyway. And so we see in the 15th verse here, it says, And when the servant of the man of God had was risen early and had gone forth, behold, an host encompassed the city with horses and chariots, and the servant said unto him, Alas, my master, meaning Elisha, how shall we do? And he answered, Elisha that is, fear not. You know, so many times our natural response and reaction is to get afraid, isn't it? It's a natural response. We have two mechanisms that largely gear a lot of our responses to things, doesn't it? It's the fight or flight symptom. Are we going to fight? Are we going to fight for ourselves, or are we going to run away? Well, you know, there is a third one to that, and that's the one Elisha is going to point out here. And Elisha says, "Just calm down. Just stay still." Don't run out there to try to take on the army by yourself because if you do, it's not going to end well. <laughs> At the same point, we don't glorify God by running away. What did Elisha do? Elisha said, let's take some time and let's pray. And Elisha prayed. And he didn't pray that something would happen to the army at this time, what he asked is he wanted to pray that this servant, this man that's serving the man of God here, that God would open his eyes. And let's read the prayer. He says, I pray thee, Lord, that you would open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around about Elisha. Now, you know what's amazing about this? There was one chariot of fire that appeared in a whirlwind and took Elijah to heaven. That was when Elijah was translated. There was a witness to that one. There was no witness for Enoch. There was a witness for Elisha, and that was that for Elijah, and that was Elisha. I don't know why their names were so similar. <laughs> Guess we wanted to be a tongue twister. But he opens, God allows his eyes to be open, and he sees something amazing, doesn't he? Not one horse and chariot of fire, but a host of horses of chariots of fire. And he understands something that Jesus relayed to the disciples. For they that be with us are more than they that be against us. And it doesn't matter what it is that comes before you in your life. God's expectation is that we would never take the easy way out. There's no glory for God in taking the easy way out, is there? We could have run out there and fought, and we would have died. 
We could have run away and it would not have been any glory to God, would it? But what happened? This man here uh, has the scales removed from his eyes, so to speak, just as we read in the New Testament, and he's able to see something that he just never would have fathomed existed. And then they just walked right through the army. And not only that, but God blinded them and he led them all the way to into Israel. And then they fed them there and sent them away. And because of that miracle, Syria never again came after Israel. But look at what happened here. It was such just this great thing that happened as a reminder that you're not alone. But you know, those are things where, you know, you have rulers that are coming after you as an individual. You have an army coming after you as an individual. You know what can be a lot harder sometimes is when your friends are coming after you as an individual. And we read about, that's the whole book of Job. The whole book of Job, for the most part, is Job's three friends coming after Job in a way where they're lifting up their self (laughs) and they're putting down Job. And they're not being a friend to him, are they? We read in this 42nd chapter, this is after the Lord has upbraided Job because Job justified himself in the sight of God. And it says here in the 42nd verse that Job answered the Lord and he said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. I mean, if there's a verse of Scripture that exists that should make us pause about how we do things on a day-to-day basis... That's it. (laughs) And here's what I would like you to understand if you're here today, whether you're saved or whether you're lost, God's keeping record of everything that happens. And you're going to stand before Him one day and you're going to give an account of everything you have done. Every thought you have ever thought, every word you have ever said, every action you've ever taken. And that's sometimes amazing for us to understand. But you say, well, how can anybody stand before a righteous God that knows everything we've ever done, everything we've ever said, and everything we've ever thought? You can't without grace. You can't without the grace of God. You cannot stand before that sort of righteousness and that sort of omniscience without grace. And so we look at this and he says, He, uh, Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare unto thou, uh, declare thou unto me. I have heard thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. And wherefore I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And the Lord heard Job. And he says actually that Job was his servant uh, to the other three friends. And the other three friends, that was Eliaphaz the Timite, uh, was one of them. And uh, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. And, uh, and he says, and, and Job actually offered an offering for them. 
that was accepted, and God also accepted Job is the way the ninth verse ends up. But Job has this lengthy 42-page book that is pretty much nothing but the his friends wrestling back and forth with him. Whatever Job says, they'll say the opposite. Boy, nothing can make you feel worse than that, can it? Not only that, Job's own wife looked at him in his state of affliction and said, you know what? You're in such a bad shape with all these boils that are from the the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Why don't you just curse God and die? Now, I don't think she meant it as harsh as maybe that came across necessarily. Sometimes we see somebody in a state of affliction and we think it would be better for you if you were to pass on. And I think it's reasonable to believe that maybe that's part of it, but I think there's also part of it where she looked at his state and said, I don't know what you did to anger God, but it would be better for you to die than to remain in the state that you're in. And so we can, you can take that for however you want to take it. But nevertheless, Job's wife was against him. He lost all of his children. He lost all of his possessions. His friends come. They're not a comfort to him. And finally, he has enough, doesn't he? And he pops. And God holds him accountable for that. But you're not alone. You're not alone. Even in that situation there, you're not alone. Moses was alone. Moses forsook all the comforts of Egypt to choose to suffer the afflictions of his people. We'll finish up with this. You know, there's a constant reminder that we should always remember. And we like to always go to Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, and we know that that's the Great Commission. Well, I'm not going to touch on most of the Great Commission today. Jesus goes through the Great Commission, but it's the way that He ends the Great Commission. It's a constant reminder that it doesn't matter the things that you're going to face as you start walking down the road that is being a Christian and it was a life of persecution. And so if you think you got it tough, you better just remember those early Christians had it way worse than you did. We sometimes boil over just because we have trouble making it to service on time, don't we? Well, that's really nothing in the grand scheme of things. It seems like something in the moment. But it's really nothing. We should not, that's not to say we shouldn't be at the Lord's house on time. We should. We should strive to be that. But we shouldn't let it get us to such a bad place. How does he end the Great Commission? With a reminder, doesn't he? I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. That's the way he ends it in Matthew 28. Don't forget that if nobody else is with you in your afflictions or in your grief or suffering or whatever it may be, and when Paul wrote in Philippians 4.13 and said, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me, what he means is I can endure every affliction that comes before me because of the grace of God and the love of Christ. But I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Proverbs chapter 18, a couple more verses, we're going to close. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. 
You want to have friends? You got to be a friendly person yourself, don't you? Jesus was an affable guy. He was easy to talk to. You ever get around those people and they just you're talking to them is like pulling teeth? <laughs> they may be a really nice person, but you know, at, at some point in time, if you want to have friends, you got to be friendly. It's just, it's real. I'd love to say life's harder than that, but it's really not. But then there's a reminder by the, by the uh, here in the uh, 24th chapter, there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. You know, you may have a friend, he's more reliable than even your own flesh and blood. Well, you know what? There's a friend that's more reliable than your own flesh and blood, and he's reliable to the point that he was willing to suffer and die at the cross of Calvary, that you would be saved. Well, you can't have a friend greater than that. And Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for a servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, because all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. Remember, it was the elect of God, and those those that were uh, that seven thousand that had never bowed knee to Baal. That's what uh, God used to lift up the spirits of Elijah. And here He says, "You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit." I'm telling you right now, it is a great thing that you got saved, but I want to tell you this this morning that God doesn't say that getting saved that's enough. He says, you go and you bear fruit. Why? Because the fruit will tell you what kind of tree it is, won't it? The fruit will tell you if the tree is righteous or if it's rotten. (laughs) That you go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. That, who, that whatsoever ye shall ask of your Father in my name, He may give it to you. Well, I'm thankful this morning for a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I'm thankful that we cannot just look at Jesus and acknowledge Him as Savior. And He is. That's the greatest office that He fulfills is the Savior. He's the intercessor. He's the only begotten Son of God. But if you get, once you get saved, he's not just all those things, even though he continues to be all those things. The best and the dearest thing that he becomes to you is he becomes a friend. When times of trouble that you can lean on. If you're here today and you're lost, we would encourage you, if the, if the Lord is dealing with your soul, this altar is open at all times. If if you're here today and the Lord is dealing with your soul, we would encourage you to act on that conviction that God is working in your heart and seek the Lord for the salvation of your soul. I could give you all manner of words to say, but at the end of the day, God didn't impart me the ability to forgive sin. He called me to preach the word. If you want forgiveness, you've got to seek it from the source. While we stand and while we sing, Brother Williams, if you've got a song. Number 250.